Kinder Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 39, where we're talking about classic women. Hello, Kendra. Hello, Autumn. How is your February? My February was cold and... How are you, Kendra? Uh, doing pretty good. I have, I have coffee and... Uh, a blanket, and I am all set to talk about classic women. I'm prepared. I am too. I I don't think we've talked much about classic women on this podcast. Yeah, I don't think so either, which I think is how it came to be, because we planned this theme last year. Yes. Yes. So we have several different interpretations of classic women, which I think is always pretty cool, seeing how we interpret um, the theme. Yes. So this is, I've, this month I read a lot of books that I've been meaning to read for a long time, so I'm excited to talk about them. Yeah, there are so many books. But before we get to that, we do have a lot of news. All the news. That's the best thing about getting past January is, like, then people start talking about award season. Right. It's like there are two award seasons. It's the fall, and then there's, like, the spring. And I am all all here for this. So the first up is the Pan America Awards. And this... It has a lot of different awards that the the Penn organization works with. So, uh, for example, Edna O'Brien won the Penn Nabokov Award for Achievement in International Literature for Work that Allows Readers to Look Clearly and Dispassionately Upon the Spectrum of Human Emotion. Have you ever read Edna O'Brien? I'm trying to think. I feel like, I don't know. Have I? I haven't read any Edna O'Brien, but I've heard great things, so. I feel like she's someone that I should have read, but I don't know if I have. yeah. I think she's on that list, that long list of books that I feel like I should have read. (laughs) Well, let's see. Oh, 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 she did The Little Red Chairs. Yeah, that was a big thing, what, a couple years ago? Yes. So I haven't, but that's how I know her, is from The Little Red Chairs. Which, didn't you read that? No, I didn't. I checked it out from the library, though. I had good intentions. That's half the battle. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Jenny Zhang won the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for debut fiction for her short short story collection. There we go. Sour Heart. The one book no one can get their hands on. Exactly. Uh, It's from the Lenny imprint, the Lena Dunham imprint. And so the first book out from that was Jenny Zhang's uh, Sour Heart, which is about 1990s New York. It's a bunch of uh, immigrant stories that are loosely connected uh, by similar characters like they show up in other stories and stuff um i haven't read this one either i i can't get my hands on a copy it's very hard like in libraries don't seem to carry it much either so no and i well i didn't want to buy it yet because lots of reasons but i was hoping to get it from the library but maybe i'll suggest it in my library they do that because they're magical <laughs> hi atlanta library okay. <laughs> ursula like Kay Le Guin won an award for the art of essay for her essay collection, No Time to Spare, which she published last year. And as we know, Ursula Le Guin died uh, in late January. Which was so sad. Yes. She was such a wonderful writer and such a big advocate for writing and for writing that excellent writing can happen in any genre. And I loved her speech for the, when she won that Lifetime Achievement yes. Award, National Book Award. Oh, my goodness. Maybe we should try to link to that if there's a video of that floating around yes. somewhere. It was amazing. Yes. And Neil Gaiman introduced her, and I just had all the feelings. Uh, yes, I know. Generations of <laughs> fantasy writers. I'm just like, if Diana Wynne Jones was there, it would be the perfect triad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> There are um, some really nice things written about her, though. I was really 
I mean, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was just really overwhelmed by how, all the th- kind things people had to say about her. Yeah. When she died. It was really sweet. It was. Well-deserved award for her. Yeah, I listened to a podcast and said that her son accepted the award for her, and it was just a really moving moment. And they have, like, some quotes from, from his speech and different things and the interviews he gave after he accepted the award. So um, if I can find that, too, I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. Sure. And then the last one that we want to talk about that was not won a pen america award is Laylee long soldier's debut poetry collection whereas which i know you read and loved and i'm trying to get my hands on a copy of this um, but it says that it is a piercing rejoinder to the u.s congressional resolution of apology to native americans and it won the pen jan stein book award so good for her yeah, she was also shortlisted for the National Book Award, so it's been doing really well. That's all from Grey Wolf. Grey Wolf does a great job with poetry. They really do. Grey Wolf just does a good job all the way around. Yeah. Lots of love for Grey Wolf. And I think also Angie Thomas won all the things. So I had to mention that because like her book now could have like five stickers on it. Can you even see the cover <laughs> behind all the stickers? <laughs> well, like the it's shaped. There's a girl standing on the cover and there's a lot of white space because, uh, you know, it's a white background. So maybe they thought of that and left a lot of room for all the stickers it was going to get. <laughs> they were planning for it. <laughs> uh, so it was a Coretta Scott King Award nominee. And a Boston Globe Horn Book Award winner. And then it was nominated for the Kirkus Prize for Young People's Literature. And it also won the Odyssey Award. And it's an Edgar Award nominee for Best Young Adult Book. And obviously it was also a long listed for the National Book Award. So lots and lots of awards for this book. So the last thing we were going to talk about is that the Women's Prize for Fiction, the long list will be announced on Women's Day. Is it International Women's Day, actually? I think so. It just said Women's Day on the websites, but it probably is International Women's Day because the Stella Prize is also announcing their shortlist March 8th. Yes. So both of these female dedicated prizes are announcing different things. Uh, and we saw I saw the long list for the Stella Prize, and I have not read any of them. Or heard of any of them, which is good for us, I guess. We can read more. I feel like I recognized <laughs> one, but I may be misremembering that. But the Stella Prize is the award where we got the strays from last year. Yes, the Australian, basically the Women's Prize for Fiction only in Australia. So the strays was amazing. And so we have an interview with Emily Biddo. So if you want to go back into our archives and listen to that, she's amazing. And the book is amazing. So I'm hopeful. I mean, obviously. They're all going to be amazing reads, but yeah, I'm always excited about the Stella now. And it's always nice for Australian authors to be recognized like this, because for whatever reason, America struggles to buy the rights for Australian books. There aren't a lot published. And I saw someone else in the UK talking about that. Not a lot of Australian books are published in the UK. And that of these long list books that for the Stella Prize, they could only find a few and so I find it very interesting. So I'm hoping that this recognition will have people buying up the rights for these books in other countries. Can you get them off a of book depository? I'm not sure. I imagine some of them you, you could. I know they do sell books from Australia. Hmm. I'll have to look into that. I'm, I'm waiting for the short list because I know my bank account couldn't <laughs> stand me buying like, what, like well, 12 books or whatever. We'll, we'll divide and conquer the short list. <laughs> so really excited about that. Oh, man. Yeah. So lots of great news in the book world for women. Um, It's just really, I don't know. Yeah. So when this podcast goes out, it'll be the next day. It will be. Just wait until tomorrow, guys. Um, We'll be sure to post about 
something about it somewhere because I'm sure we'll be excited. Yes, all over all the social medias. <laughs> That's all we have for news, which means it's time for us to talk about classic women. And part of the reason we wanted to talk about classic women is because even though there's a lot of really amazing women who are publishing now, it's not always been that way. And so we kind of wanted to highlight some people from the way back who are writing really amazing books. And some of these are newer books, but just this idea of like situating ourselves in the history of that women writers have been around for a really, really long time. Yeah. And I think we all have classics by wonderful women that we haven't read. Like I've never read Elizabeth Gaskell or um, George Eliot. And I mean, those books are, are huge. So I wasn't going to tackle 900 page book for this month, but they're definitely on my list. And I can't believe I've never read them, but I think we all have those gaps. And I don't know why we picked a theme with the longest books ever for the shortest month to read in the <laughs> shortest <laughs> month of the year. But I think you have the first book to talk about, Kendra. Yes, I do. So I took this way back classic literature and I chose The Odyssey by Homer, though you might be like, what? <laughs> well, I actually picked up the translation by Emily Wilson. This is the first translation by a woman that has been published. There have been other academic translations by women, but this is the first one that the general public could have access to. So this is out from W.W. W. Norton, and I always love their their work. And they published this beautiful edition of the Odyssey, and I love Emily Wilson's translation. So when I read this in college, I originally read this really popular translation by a dude, and it was fine. You know, I, I love the Iliad and the Odyssey. I think they're great, but so I love the Iliad and the Odyssey. I found them very fascinating. I love Greek mythology. It's just something that I've always enjoyed, uh, but you know, when you read about Odysseus, which is what the Odyssey is about, he is leaving the Trojan War and trying to get back home. He's already been away for 10 years at this war, and it actually takes him 10 more years to get back to his wife, Penelope, and he's basically, this is his adventures. He ends up, uh, air quotes, trapped on an island for seven years with a beautiful woman, and it's, I was talking to Sam about it last night, and he said, this is like the most blatant male fantasy ever. Yeah. And it's true. It, <laughs> sailing around the world, sleeping with the most beautiful women who are basically throwing themselves at you. Uh, yeah. But uh, what Emily Wilson does in her introduction, she talks a little bit about that. She talks about how oftentimes slave girl is translated to servant or house girl or whatever, and she wanted to be more... Uh, you know, she wanted to be more uh, literal in her translation so that we knew as readers that these this was not a choice for many of these women, especially in some circumstances where the women were blamed for certain things. And so she wanted uh, us to be aware of that. But one of the things she also talks about, besides the problematic text itself, is that a lot of times when men translate the Odyssey, it's it's pretty sexist. And she wanted to kind of take that to task. So she says here uh, in her translator's note, uh, most translations introduce derogatory language such as sluts or whores, suggesting that these women are being punished for a genuinely objectionable pattern of behavior as if their sexual history actually justified their deaths. The original Greek does not label these slaves with any derogatory language. Many contemporary translators render Helen's dog face as if it were equivalent to shameless Helen or Helen the bitch. I have kept the metaphor hounded and have also made sure that my Helen, like that of the original, refrains from blaming herself for what men have done in her name. Interesting. Yes. I, I 
was like cheering her on, you know, because (laughs) I am all here for that. And when this translation came out in the UK, I listened to an interview with her about why she made these translation uh, decisions. And she wanted to take out some of the sexism that some translators have put into the text. Like it needs any more issues, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but I really appreciate what she did. And you can definitely tell that in the text. It's interesting how these stories get assimilated into the culture, though, because honestly, even though like I read this in college and stuff, I don't think it fully registered with me because they talk so much about like authorized editions of translations or whatever. Like it never registered to me as a translation for whatever reason, because the translation kind of gets codified. So when I this came out, I was like, whoa, that's really cool that like we're still translating these really old works. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and I don't think she would ever say this is the only translation you'll ever need. If you actually want to study it, then she, I'm sure she would highly recommend you go, obviously, and learn you know, ancient Greek. But right. <laughs> also read, read other translations. But this, for a person who just wants to read the story, it's very accessible. And it also uses modern English. Um, she says in another part of the translator's note, a lot of other translators will try to use like archaic English language mm. to try to give the illusion of the ancient Greek. But she says... Yeah, like that really, (laughs) you think like English from like 100 years ago is any less far removed from ancient Greek. Uh, And so she kind of like cast translator shade on these methods of illusion. (laughs) So that is The Odyssey uh, by Homer, translated by Emily Wilson, and that is out from W.W. Norton. My first book is Frankenstein by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. And I wanted to read Frankenstein for a couple of reasons. One, because this year is the 200th anniversary of it being published which is pretty important. My goodness. And then another reason is because all I know about Frankenstein is like from, you know, Young Frankenstein or Scooby-Doo or, you know, (laughs) Halloween at Target, like that kind of a thing. And there was, I really wanted to know like what the original story was. And this is actually one of our discussion books for next month. So I'm not going to go too far into my thoughts about it as a first-time reader, but I was really surprised by what the story was. It starts out with, like, this narration from this guy, and then it leads to, like, Frankenstein, and it, it leads to the monster, so it's like a frame tale within a frame tale within a frame tale, so it's, like, pretty, yeah, it's pretty, um... It's pretty complicated, and it's very, it's written in the Romantic era, and I was talking to Josh about this, and he was like, well, Autumn, she was married to Percy Shelley, and I'm like, well, okay, yeah, sure, that makes sense. (laughs) So, like, the language is very flowery and very idealistic and very uh, effusive and all the things, Um, which also surprised me because the interpretations we see of Frankenstein in pop culture are very dumbed down right it's like the monster the monster is like me want whatever but like in the book like the monster uses gre words and i'm like hold it here like i don't know what you're talking about so it was yeah so he uses better english than i do (laughs) Uh, and i was also actually really interested in the fact that it was more of a revenge tale than i expected for it to be so all of those things were really really fascinating about it and i i loved it like Sure, it's kind of tedious in places, but I thought it was delightful. Yeah, I remember when I first read it, I was very surprised as well. As it, it's just so much more in-depth, and it's very philosophical in the nature of life and what it means to be human and uh, just a lot of uh, different classic 
mythological themes, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit um, in the next episode. But it is a really beautiful piece. And I can't believe that science fiction has been around for 200 years now. That's pretty cool. I, I know. Of course, right? the romantics invented it. Well, of course. The interesting thing is, too, is like there's that gif that's going around Twitter right now from Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum's like <laughs> the scientist. I don't know. The scientists didn't know what they were creating or whatever. Um, it's like, it's not whether or not can we, it's yes, we? Yes, thank you, Kendra. I, <laughs> hi, I'm pop culture illiterate. Um, <laughs> but she actually raises that question in this book about, like, just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should do something. So, like, it's fascinating to me that 200 years later, we're still asking this exact same question of, should we create things because we can? So... Props to Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley for, you know, cornering the market on that. <laughs> but we're gonna, I'm going to talk a little bit more about my some of the themes in it and just kind of the history of the book and some other things in our next episode. And there's not really any spoilers in it either. I mean, it's pretty ubiquitous. But anyway, so... 200-year-old <laughs> spoilers. 200-year-old <laughs> spoilers. So that is Frankenstein by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. So my next pick is The Portable 19th Century African-American Women Writers, edited by Hollis Robbins and Henry Louis Gates Jr. Uh, And Henry Louis Gates Jr. is an amazing scholar who put together this library, which I'll be talking about in a second, uh, that seeks to make early uh, writings by African-American women accessible to the public because there's so few of them and a lot of them are in poor condition. They have to remain in museums or they're going to disintegrate. So what he did was he helped create a library with the Oxford University Press. And then he also helped this one make this one, which just came out last year. Uh, And this is a lot of early writings by 19th century African-American women writers. And what I love about this collection, which I, you know, confession, I have not read all 600 pages of this, but I don't think it's one that you're supposed to read in order. Like, it's just, it has all this collection of a bunch of different writers in it. And I mean, one of the first ones that I read was one by Sojourner Truth. But it also includes a wonderful essays and commentary by the editors, and it also has like an introduction to each author so you can learn the context of when they're writing, and it talks about different types of writing, and it also features everything from like uh, essays to fiction to poetry to slave narratives to you know, essays on education and social reform and just so many different types of essays. Oh my goodness. I, I just didn't even know there were so many wonderful women writers. How many pages is it again? Um, almost 600. It is 600, yeah. I feel like these kinds of books are just great to buy and just keep on your shelf. Yeah, definitely. Especially, I, I was reading another book uh, for this month, and they were mentioning other women writers of that time period, and I was like, oh, well then, I can go look this writer up in this, you know, in the anthology. And it's really accessible, and Penguin Classics are fairly inexpensive, mm-hmm. so you can just have that on on your shelf. And I think this is fantastic that they're drawing attention to more African-American early women writers. I mean, it's hard enough for a woman to write in this time period, let alone if you're also African-Americans. The fact that they're drawing attention to that and writing about them, but also sharing their writing. And it's really cool. I'm very excited about this. So I look forward to finishing it as well, because again, it's 600 pages and there are so many different writers in here. So that is the portable 19th century African, uh, the portable 19th century African American women writers, edited by Hollis Robbins and Henry Louis Gates Jr. And that's out from Penguin Classics. And that brings us halfway through our podcast, where 
we're talking about our Patreon page. So we are talking about our Patreon page. And have we talked about our book club before? I think we might have mentioned a few times, but we're pretty excited about it. We started this new thing by popular demand from our patrons. So in case you're wondering if our patrons actually get feedback into what we do, they actually absolutely do. Um, So we are starting a quarterly book club where we are proposing several different books and then our patrons choose a book and then we all read it and we'll have a live book discussion every quarter. And this quarter, we are going to be talking about My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante, which is translated by Anne Goldstein and put out by Europa Editions, who is our favorite. Yes, it's very true. And they're just so together. They all look so beautiful on your shelf. And anyway, (laughs) so if you want to participate in our book club, we have several different levels on our Patreon page. The lowest price one is just a dollar. And so if you want to participate in that discussion and share and help give feedback to the podcast on a more immediate basis and get behind the scenes looks and updates, be sure to go over and check that out. And we will have a link for it in our show notes. And I think you have the next pick. So why don't you just keep going? Uh, (laughs) So much time. Um, Words. Okay. So the next book that I read was The Awakening by Kate Chopin. And this is another one of those like really classic books that you probably should have at least read in grad school. I read a different one of her short stories. But I really wanted to read The Awakening because it's just one of those like ubiquitous kind of stories. And it's also set in the American South, like on the coast though, in Louisiana, so it's a little bit different region. So it is the story of Edna Pontillier, and she is about this 28-year-old woman who has two young sons and she's married, but she kind of is blase about life. And she, I don't know, she likes this cute guy who comes to the beach with them every summer, which I don't really understand, like, the cultural mechanisms of, like, these beach trips that they would make, but I'm just going to leave it there. So she finds herself, like, just really frustrated, like, with her marriage and just with what she's doing with her life, and she's not really content with these society parties that she has to throw all the time. And she's just really restless and her husband travels a lot for work and he's kind of a jerk anyway. So she sets out on her own to kind of like carve her own path in the world, which this book was published in 1899. Wow. So, I mean, this is very early on um, and very progressive for 1899. So one of my favorite parts is she decides to like, buy a house around the corner like she leaves her like giant mansion and goes and like gets a room of her own and her husband is out of town on business and he hears about it like she writes him a letter right so it takes like weeks for it to get there and by the time she gets the letter back she's already moved out but he's so concerned that the neighbors will think that they're getting a divorce or separating that he takes out an ad in the newspaper and says the Pontillier family is going to be renovating their home for the next three weeks like construction (laughs) is well underway like blah 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 and then like actually remodels their living room to like cover it up dedicated (laughs) i'm like that is some dedication man like weird but dedication it's a really interesting book it's also really sad i'm not going to give any spoilers but i just was really impressed by like the language and by how she builds the story it's a very short book it's only 
mm, let's see, it's like 200 pages, something like that. So it's not very long at all, but man, it packs a punch. Yeah. I remember reading that in college and for the first time and like that class where you discuss the book, everyone was just like so silent because it's a very sad book. And oh my goodness. I remember there was a lot of bird imagery in it. I think. Yes. (laughs) So which is really interesting to follow as well, because all the layers of meaning that Kate Chopin has put in there. And she wrote the story of an hour, I think is what it's called. I think so. It's the one, yeah, and and that one is also really sad. And you can see, you know, a lot of her life she wrote to support her family, and she wrote this beautiful novel and all the feelings. I had to reread the ending twice because I was like, "What? <laughs> what just happened?" <laughs> and then I had to go back and like pay closer attention. I was like, "Oh, oh, oh." <laughs> Yeah, it's like one of that. It's near the end of Mama Day, where like you're yes. reading it five billion times. Like I don't right. believe that just happened. So I'm going to reread this and see if it changes. <laughs> so all that to say, it's a great book, very fast read. Um, definitely one that if you're wanting to read some more classic literature kind of stuff, you can easily sneak into your to read list. And so that is the Awakening by Kate Chopin. My next pick is actually my pick for this discussion book for our next episode, and that is Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, out from Oxford University Press is the one that I read, and this is by Phyllis Wheatley. And I actually have the collected edition, so if you're looking for this book, just FYI, you're probably going to just find a collected edition, and that's fine. It's pretty short, so um, I think also Penguin Classics publishes an edition. But I got the Oxford uh, University Press edition, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because I really love the editor of this edition and what he has to say in a lot of his essays. So we're going to talk about that in the next episode. But the reason I picked this book is because it's the first book by an African-American to be published. And this was by Phyllis Wheatley. It was by a woman. And it was published in London in 1773. And before that, she tried to get it published. She wrote poems and, you know, different places. And then she wanted to get published. But people wouldn't believe that she, an African-American a slave girl, would be able to write this poetry. And so she actually had to go to court. And her master had to sign, like, this thing, which is printed in, you know, the 1773 edition. And also all of these men had to sign off on this statement saying that they had interviewed her. And indeed, she did have the language capabilities to do this. And it's like 15 people. Yeah. And it's like... It's not like four guys. It's like 15. (laughs) It's like... I can't believe the the links that she had to go to to get this published. And actually, in the United States, they wouldn't... They didn't want to publish it. So she got it published in London because a, like, a countess funded it. And so that's how she was able to get it published. And... Go countess. I know, right? Right? The, there was a... The editor in the edition I read was like, this is pretty much an entirely female-funded project. And, you know, and I thought that would obviously... I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> but I really loved reading these poems and she is a big fan of neoclassicism and alexander pope who you know is the hero of he wrote he wrote couplets he was really big into couplets like all the time and you just get like your brain wants to melt a little bit beautiful language in her poetry and she writes obviously about various subjects both religious and moral uh, but she has a lot of poetry dedicated to um, people written for people when a spouse has died or a child has died she also writes patriotic poetry lots of themes of freedom and uh, she wrote uh, some sarcastic poetry which <laughs> I think is very interesting um, in the collected edition it's in a different one but um, I just love what she did 
and I've never, I'd only read a few poems by her before. Had you read her, any of her poems before? I hadn't. Um, Josh, of course, had, but I hadn't. Yeah, it was, I, I think she's such, just a delight. She's so fresh and, and hopeful, especially in her circumstances. Mm. It was really amazing that, you know, a lot of times, you know, we know women oftentimes had to use a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And they even put her, um, her portrait in the in the first part of the book and they had like this cut out and so you saw a portrait of uh this african-american woman sitting at a table writing and it was just uh the guy was like this is one of the most revolutionary things ever to happen <laughs> and i was just like this dude is really geeking out about it but i see why <laughs> so anyway um i'll quit geeking out about it and i'll save the rest of it for our discussion episode but if you guys want to read along definitely go check out uh poems on various subjects both uh, Religious and Moral by Phyllis Wheatley. And I should say that, like, both of our discussion books this month are in the public domain, so if you don't have a copy, you should be able to download it on your Kindle for free. So, just as a side note. That was your last pick. It was. I know. Okay, so my <laughs> final pick is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And yes, 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 I know. Some people like Wuthering Heights better. And yes, I like the movie. Yes, because David Niven, but that is a side note. So Jane Eyre is like a classic orphan tale. She is the ward of this family, the Reed family. And John Reed is her uncle, and he dies, and his wife is no good, and she hates Jane. And basically, after... I don't even remember his name because he was such a brat. Her bratty son <laughs> punches Jane in the face... And so, as punishment, Jane is sent to a very strict and religious boarding school. Yeah. It <laughs> doesn't add up. Um, so, Jane is there, and I haven't quite finished it yet because it's like 500 pages, and I decided to read it in February, and there's only 28 days in February. The thing that I think I've been most... And then, like, okay, so then she goes to this orphanage, and then, like, she ends up meeting Mr. Rochester, but I'm not to that part yet. So far, I really love Jane, and one thing that's really interesting is her relationships with the girls that she meets at the school. She forms these really close bonds, and they, um, and these girls help her get through like these really horrible things that are happening at the school, where she's like publicly humiliated and told, you know, that she's a liar in front of the whole school. And so, this bond of female friendship is something that's really important to her, which reminds me, of course, of all the single ladies and the chapter in there on female friendship so it's just really cool to just see that so far and i'm not even to the romance part yet and i'm cool with that so far but (laughs) in when i was reading kind of the context of this about this book in preparation for this podcast i found this really interesting article in the guardian where this it was like an op-ed where this person was saying that jane Eyre is like the first ya book and i was like oh that's interesting because when i went to go get it from my library like, 90% of the copies were shelved in the YA department. And I was like, why is Jane Eyre over in, like, YA? That doesn't make sense to me. And then in this op-ed, this person argues that because it's, like, the point-of-view character is a young girl, and we follow her, like, through these trials and tribulations as, like, a young adult, like, to adulthood, it has a lot of the same characteristics as YA. I was like, that's really interesting. That is really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't either because it's so, we so situate it in adult literature because of, probably because of the language and because of when it was published, quite honestly. But so that's kind of an interesting lens to think about it. Yeah, it is. And I remember, well, my favorite part is the part how she interacts with men in particular and how she's just like, I'm, 
I have been through enough. I am not going to let you walk over me, dude. Like, so there's some amazing, like the I am no bird quote is from Jane Eyre. And it's an amazing quote. I want to like, you know, pin on my walls. And I, I just love that quote. And I love how she just sticks to her guns and she has such a fiery and vivacious nature and she knows what what she wants and also what is right and she sticks with her her conscience and I just I just love her because she is not an anti-hero she really is a heroine and I just find that very refreshing sometimes you know you just want to go read someone you can admire you know to admire Mm -hmm. and Jean is definitely one of those people and I read Wuthering Heights as well and they always say like you're either one or the other but I enjoy both so I'm not sure what that says about me. I also love Anne. I love I love Anne though. Anne might be my favorite. So I really like it so far, and it's such a different flavor from Jane Austen, which I've read. And even though her, her heroines just have a little bit of a different take on them, they're a little bit more um, subtle. Whereas like Jane Eyre just puts it all out there, like this is my opinion, and I don't care what you think. <laughs> Pretty interesting. She's, she's definitely been through enough. And now that you are reading Jane Eyre, when you're done, you can finally read Jane Steele. Yes. I can't read Jane Steele until I read Jane Eyre. It's true. I've been told. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You, you almost half the illusions. So. I've, I've been sanctioned. Um, so that is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And I think that is all of our picks. That is all of them. My goodness. Every time this goes by so fast. So... I guess, uh, so what do you, after all of those books, what are you reading now, Autumn? <laughs> well, I'm still reading Jane Eyre, obviously. Um, but yes. I have also just started Where the Line Bleeds by Jessamyn Ward, and this was recently republished by Scribner, and it is the only Jessamyn Ward novel I haven't read, so I'm really excited to finish the tr- the Jessamyn Ward trilogy. Yeah, oh my goodness. I'm excited about this one too. I haven't read her debut either. And for the record, they're not like a true trilogy, but they are all set in the same set in the same town. So there's continuity for sure. And then what are you reading? Um I'm reading Circe by Madeline Miller and this is coming out from Little Brown in April. Now, what happened was I was done the Odyssey and I was like, I I need more of this. So I picked up the Song of Achilles and I listened to that on audio and was just like falling in love with this woman and what she's doing. So I picked up Circe. And one of the things that I love is pulling up Wikipedia and pulling up family trees and looking at who all is related to whom. You're such a nerd. (laughs) And so I just immediately picked up Circe and I'm about 100 pages in so far and I am loving it. So all here all here for that um so that is it for this episode of reading women and we have big news we are now on spotify so if you have been waiting for us to get on spotify you wait no longer we are there so definitely check that out if you haven't already please review us in either itunes or wherever you get your podcast we greatly appreciate it and it definitely makes our day and we also have a newsletter. So we have new books that we're really excited about. We have reviews. Uh, we have uh, different features uh, like author interviews go right to the, your newsletter so you won't miss a single uh, Q&A because we also do a lot of author Q&As on our website. Most recently, we did one with Beth Ann Fenley, the author of Heating and Cooling. Which is amazing. It is amazing. 
So you'll definitely want to go check that out. And all of that will be linked in the show notes. One last bit of housekeeping. We have a survey. So many of you have already filled it out. And thank you so much for that. But if you fill out the survey, you get a 15% off coupon code for the Reading Women store, where we have a lot of really amazing blind book dates and some other Reading Women swag that you can check. So if you have time, we'd really appreciate it if you could fill out the survey. It will help us make the podcast better in the upcoming months. And then be sure to join us next month where we will be talking about Frankenstein and we will be talking about Phyllis Wheatley's poems. And thank you all so much for listening. You can find Reading Women on all the social media channels at The Reading Women and you can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. And thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.